All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and find verse 16. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, This morning's text is about improper fasting. So I want to go ahead and read the passage for you before any introductory work is done. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus says this. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, fasting was an exceedingly normal thing in Jesus' day and among his people. And not only among his people, in fact, fasting is and was a worldwide phenomenon and can be identified in virtually every religious tradition known to man, be it an Abrahamic offshoot or a thoroughly pagan religious system. Fasting is just sort of a reality uh, throughout all faiths. The motives, the intentions, and the aims for fasting vary widely from religion to religion, but the ubiquity of it is not in question. So to start, let's just establish a a definition of fasting. The Greek and Hebrew words that are used for fasting both mean abstention from eating. Abstention from eating, and that's the only way that the word is used throughout the scriptures. In the Bible, fasting always means going without food. It's what it always means. That means that it's, it's sort of a novel thing to think of fasts from television or fasts from social media or fasts from romance novels. <laughs> now, that's not me saying that those things are necessarily bad things to abstain from. I think that, in fact, those things can be helpful things to, okay, we're going to put these things on the shelf for a period of time so that we can work new rhythms into our lives, new habits focus more intently on other things. I think that those are fine, good, and right uh, fasts to engage in, but ultimately those aren't the kinds of fasts that the Bible has in view. If if we're going to say I'm fasting from television, we should just air quote it. I'm fasting from television uh, because it's, it's a separate category from what the Bible always means when it talks about fasting because the Bible always means abstention from food. So our definition for this morning of fasting is very simply, fasting is abstaining from eating for some period of time for some spiritual reason. That's what fasting is. It's abstaining from food for some period of time for some spiritual reason. We'll look at some of those spiritual reasons uh, that people engaged in fasts for in due course and that will help to set a course hopefully for our own fasting as that begins to take place more and more. But, but now, to get our minds around fasting and begin considering its importance, because not, fasting can be an odd thing for moderns to talk about. <laughs> In fact, some of you may be sitting there scratching your heads like, you just launched straight into fasting, like, uh, is that, that's a thing that we do? That's a normal thing to talk about in church? Or <laughs> some of you are kind of like, right, could you give me some more introductory stuff like you normally do instead of just launching in there? Because why are we talking about not eating food? Uh, but I think it'll be better if, if instead of me making lots of lengthy prologue type points about fasting, I instead just provide a biblical history of it. And so that's what we'll do now. We first encounter fasting in Le- 
Leviticus 23 as a prescription. Like the first time that God says, I want you to abstain from food, I'm ordering it. It's a command. That's Leviticus 23, when God called all of Israel to fast on the annual day of atonement. Now that prescribed fast, when God said, here's the day that I want you to do it, here's what fasting's connected to, it's connected to that day of atonement, which connects fasting to penitence and contrition. It was a means of people humbling themselves before God. They're using the external act of fasting to both induce and express an internal humility. They're literally weakening themselves before the Lord. We're always weak before the Lord, but we're in and out of awareness of our weakness before the Lord. And so fasting induces a, a, a kind of close, real awareness of the state that we're actually always in before the Lord, but often fail to be in consciously. So that's what fasting gets tied to as it's tethered to the Day of Atonement. It's penitence, it's contrition, it's humbling yourself before the Lord. Again, inducing that and expressing it in terms of internal humility. Moses, you'll probably remember, engaged in two back-to-back fasts on Mount Sinai while he was receiving God's law. Daniel engaged in a 21-day partial fast as he abstained from, quote, delicacies, meat, and wine during a period of mourning the sins of Israel and receiving revelation from the Lord. Hannah, Samuel's mother, fasted and prayed to the Lord for a child while she was yet barren. Ezra proclaimed a fast among all of the Israelite exiles who were about to journey home to ask God for safety as they traveled. Nehemiah, also during the exilic period, fasted and prayed that the Lord would grant his people favor and see them back safely to their homeland. Esther called a fast for all of the Jews in Persia to petition the Lord for her safety as she went before the king to plead for their lives. King Jehoshaphat called a national fast to ask the Lord to spare them after discovering that a vast army was headed toward Jerusalem to destroy them. The Ninevites, interestingly, now were outside of Judaism, were outside of the Hebrews. The Ninevites fasted as they repented of their sins and begged the Lord not to destroy them. The prophetess Anna is found in the temple day and night, worshiping, fasting, and praying in anticipation of the Messiah at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Our Lord fasted prior to engaging in his public ministry. In our text that we've already read this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, we see the assumption that Jesus' followers will fast, and then a promise of reward when we engage in fasting properly. In the book of Acts, we see the soon-to-be Apostle Paul engage in a three-day fast after his encounter with the risen Christ. Also in the book of Acts, we see a fast before the commissioning of the first church missionaries. They're fasting and praying, and then the Holy Spirit gives them a word to commission uh, Saul or Paul and Barnabas. We also see that Paul and Barnabas fast uh, before they appoint elders in churches that they had planted. And so one thing that some scholars have noted, I think rightly, is that as Scripture progressively unfolds, and this is just an interesting observational point, as Scripture continues to unfold progressively, fasting among God's people increases. It doesn't decrease. It increases. It doesn't decrease. That is to say that that there's something about God's people growing up 
that seems to lead to more fasting, not less of it. That as God gives more revelation, as God sheds more grace, that God's people seem to be fasting more, again, not less. In Israel's infancy, only one fast was required. But as she, and that is as we, grow, maturity seems to cause more fasting. Just an interesting observational note. Now, while many have taken note of the instances of fasting that I just shared with you, those 13 or so instances that we just ticked off, many people have taken note of that. They'll often point out very quickly that those are descriptions. They're not prescriptions, meaning that while the behavior of fasting is described in these passages, with the exception of Leviticus chapter 23, they are not prescribed in the passages. And so they're saying that's the Bible telling us what some faithful people did, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do it too. And some of you are definitely sitting there thinking, please don't tell me that I'm supposed to go periods of time without food. <laughs> Can we say that that was for some other period of time in redemptive history? That'd be a, that'd be a great thing. And, and while I agree that these are descriptive passages, not prescriptive ones, I also think that the specifics of the descriptions matter. The specifics of the descriptions matter. Because how things are described in Scripture teach us things. And overwhelmingly, the descriptions of fasting, properly and righteously observed, are tied to all kinds of wondrous acts of redemption, salvation, revelation, and commissioning. That's what these descriptions of fasting are tethered to. So if God's people are found in Scripture doing a certain thing over and over, and the result of their doing so generally results in blessing from God, I think we're wise to deduce from those descriptions an encouragement to imitate what we've just seen described. Now, another point of interest in considering these examples of fasting and blessing is the fact that outside of the one-day fast on the Day of Atonement that the Lord commanded, all of the other fasts, which, again, are tied to significant acts of redemption, salvation, revelation, and commissioning, all of those instances, which were not commanded by God, but were willfully initiated by people, and still they led to blessing. Now, that, that should be a point of interest to us. God commands one fast on the Day of Atonement, and His people engage in all kinds of fasts, despite Him only commanding one, and they're richly blessed for it. Were they adding to or perverting the law like the Pharisees of Jesus' day? I mean, that, to be honest with you, anytime I see something in Scripture where it's like, God said do this, and now you've got people who added that fasting day, and they added this fasting day, and Ezra thinks he has the authority to call a fasting day for all of them. I mean, it's like, hold on. God, you're telling me to do more than God told me to do. God said one day. All the other time I can eat the cookies. I mean, he said one. And so we may be tempted to think, okay, is this not a pharisaical addition to the law that's happening in the fact that God prescribes one fasting day? And I just gave you a litany of examples that's just a sample size of all of the other fasting in which God's people engaged. And so I would have a tendency to lean in the direction of saying, hey, don't require more than God requires. That can be a dangerous and damning thing. And yet, as we read the descriptions of these other fasts that were not expressly commanded, what are they tied to? They're tied to great blessing. 
They're tied to salvation. They're tied to redemption. They're tied to incredible acts of God on behalf of his people in response to their fasting. And so judging by those blessings, I don't think that we can say that this is in the same category as pharisaical or unlawful additions to God's law. Rather, I think what's happened here is that God's people extrapolated a principle of fasting from God's one command to do it on one day, and they applied that principle more broadly, and they were blessed for doing so. Two points that I'm trying to make at this stage. One, God's people's approach to the fasting law that we see in Scripture is the right approach to the law in general, and this is review for most of us. It's a window, as we've said, into God's ways, allowing us to see animating principles that provide light for the entirety of life, not just the specific circumstance in which the law was given. And so they saw, here's a fast, the Day of Atonement. Here's what God's tethered fasting to. It's this idea of contrition and humility and penitence and lowering ourselves before the Lord. That's the principle that God has assigned to fasting and then they applied that principle to other seasons in their history nationally, to other seasons in their lives personally, and they were not penalized for seeing a principle in that one law that then they applied to other particulars in their lives and in their nation's life. Second point that I'm trying to make in drawing attention to that is that it's clear from both the biblical and historical accounts of fasting among God's people, that if we aren't fasting, we're missing out on some measure of blessing. It just seems to be clear. When we look at what happened throughout biblical history, and we look at what's happened throughout church history, there's something that the Lord likes about his people lowering and humbling themselves in fasting. So I do believe, based on those two accountings, that being biblical and historical, that if we are not fasting, we are missing out on some measure, measure of blessing. Now, I'll spare you having to listen to voluminous quotes that could be compiled about the necessity of fasting from the church fathers to the reformers to the Puritans and just leave you with Charles Hodges' summary statement about all of those quotations. Here's what he says. All eminently pious persons have been more or less addicted to this mode of spiritual culture, that is, to fasting. And so, as, as a church historian who's looking through these things, both biblically and at our other forebearers in the faith, he's saying, one thing that seems to unite the most noteworthy saints throughout history, those who were used most potently by God, one thing that we can see tethering them together is they all seem to be kind of, to use his word, addicted to fasting. It's a point of interest. And I think, to Hodge's point, the fact that we are typically not a fasting people is evidence of the fact that we are not a particularly pious people. We're addicted to feasting, not fasting. And it's made our feasts of little value because we never cease from them. We've come to believe that we're entitled to them. Christians should be a fasting people. Again, our preaching text this morning simply assumes fasting as a regular practice for Jesus' followers. He says, when you fast, do it like this, not like this. It's just assuming, of course you're going to be engaged in fasting. Everybody knows that. And we're all like, I didn't know that. <laughs> is, that is that obvious? And of course, again, the Lord Jesus promises 
that there will be reward given to us by God for engaging in the practice rightly. So we should be fasting. And we should be fasting for the same reasons that our forebearers in the faith were engaged in fasting. So let's canvas some of those reasons now. We should be fasting to humble ourselves from the outside in, as is the case in Psalm 69.10 and Psalm 35.13. Humbling ourselves from the outside in. We should be fasting as part of our worship, expressing that God and his word is our true portion, as we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 37. We should be fasting to express sorrow for our sin and the sins of our people, as in Daniel chapter 10. We should be fasting to seek guidance and power in ministry, as we see really all throughout the book of Acts, but specifically in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. We should be fasting to petition the Lord for revival, as we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. We should be fasting to ask the Lord for national protection, as in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. We should be fasting as an act of national repentance, as we saw in the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. And so that's a broad understanding of fasting, its history in Scripture, the extrapolations from the principle of God's one required fast, and then them applying that principle throughout other circumstances, and then some specific instances that moved people to fasting, whether it be they were repenting before the Lord, they were asking protection from the Lord, they were seeking guidance from the Lord, they were lamenting something, all of these things. So with that broad understanding of fasting established, let's come more squarely now to our preaching text for the morning. I'll read it for you again. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the, hypocrite, like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus assumes that we'll fast. That's such a given that he doesn't even bother telling us to do it. He just says, when you do it. Instead, he tells us how to do it and how not to do it. Now, in the Greek, the word hypocrite, as most of you know, refers to actors, actors on a stage. That's what the word in the, the common first century usage referred to. And so that's how most teaching of this passage goes, uh, zeroing in on this idea of religious hypocrisy. We'd say that the hypocrite is one who's playing a part. It's someone who's faking it. They do one thing on the outside, but the inside is a totally different story. That's the hypocrite. They pray, they give, and they fast, but those prayers aren't really for God or for the people who are named in their prayers. <laughs> it's really about demonstrating their eloquence before the hearers of their prayer. They give, but their intention isn't to honor God or to help anyone. They just want to make sure that they you know, develop some sort of a reputation as a generous person. They fast, but unto a goal that does not accord with the true purpose of God's fast. These actions are engaged in, then, as an actor who's entrenching himself in a role in order to make people believe that he is what he is not. That's the idea of the hypocrite. In common thought and usage, hypocrisy is in play when there's a discrepancy between a person's inside and their outside. That's 
our understanding of the hypocrite. The hypocrite hides what he's really doing. The hypocrite hides what he's really doing. But this typical treatment of hypocrisy doesn't actually seem to work in this passage, does it? Some of you are already seeing why. Because if that's how we're supposed to understand hypocrisy, then did you notice that Jesus actually tells us to engage in it in verses 17 and 18 of our text? But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Now what did Jesus just tell us to do except to hide what we're really doing? Do you notice that? He just says, hide it. Keep it a secret. Don't let them know what you're really doing. We're really fasting, but we're supposed to go out of our way to make sure that nobody else knows about it. But isn't it hypocrisy to hide what you're really doing? Isn't that playing a role? In fact, Jesus does tell them to play a role. He tells us to play the role of a well-fed, energized person. When actually, in reality, we're an underfed, depleted person. Huh? I mean, he's literally prescribing hypocrisy as we understand it. Maybe he's just telling us that hypocrisy, hypocrisy is fine so long as you're engaged in the inverse version of it, of the Pharisees. <laughs> Maybe then hypocrisy is fine. So it's not that it's wrong in principle, it's that it's wrong to do it that way. And, and truthfully, there may be something to that, and I wouldn't fault you for stopping at that point, but some insight from the scholarly guild is helpful here. Now, as I mentioned in one of the earlier sermons in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, from which many of the first century Jews worked and studied. And in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word hypocrite is used, but its meaning didn't carry the connotation of an actor on a stage who was playing a role. Rather, it just, it just referred to an ungodly or a godless person, which is how I take the word to be used here. The reason that I prefer and agree that hypocrite should be understood simply as ungodly in this context and not as an actor who's doing something externally that doesn't align with the inside is because I believe that the Bible actually does call us to play roles externally that don't match the internal realities. I think that the Bible calls us to that all the time. I think that that is Christian living, probably 95% of it is us playing a role despite the fact that the inside might be screaming, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. In fact, I think that hypocrisy, as we commonly understand it, is necessary for godliness. I've highlighted this and highlighted this and highlighted this and highlighted this, and I'm going to highlight it again. The Bible calls us to perform certain external actions precisely because those actions aren't in alignment with our internal state. Because we're in the process of training the inside by means of our obedience on the outside. That's, that's part of God's big plan in all of this sanctification stuff that we talk about. The internal incongruity is simply a part of the process of maturation. It's God calling you to do things that you don't like until you acquire the taste for them. That's the idea. That may be a wife submitting to her husband, though she absolutely doesn't want to. Maybe a child obeying his parents, 
despite the fact that he turned 13 and thinks he's grown, thinks he knows something. Obey your parents. Play the role. Maybe a man leading his family after a long day at work, gets home, he knows he's supposed to wash his family with the water of the word, he really wants to turn on the television. Don't do it. Don't do it. Play the role. The question is not what you want to do on the inside. It's what God has commanded you to do on the outside. Play the role. It's the same thing that we're doing in education, isn't it? In the education of our children, we're training them not only to understand how God made the world and how it works, but to love the way that God made the world and how it works. We're teaching them, hopefully, to marvel at and delight in all that is around them and to see their creator in it. But how do you get them to that point? You force them. You force them. You make them get up. You make them sit down at the table. You make them open the book. You see, everything is a disciplined science before it is an enjoyable art. Everything is discipline before it is delight. Or how about Paul's call in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, many of you knew I was going here, where he says, act like men. That's what he said. That's literally what he says. Act like men. He's telling the Corinthians men to act, to play the part, to play the role of a man, irrespective of whether or not they really feel like it on the inside. Be brave, be assertive, be a leader, not because you feel like it, but because you're called to it by your God. All of that to say that faithfulness demands hypocrisy, if we're using that word in the modern vernacular. Faithfulness demands that we hide, cover, and suppress what's on the inside in order to do what God has commanded on the outside. And as we've discussed... He will use that external conformity to his standards to transform the inside and to bring us along. So when your friends ask you what the pastor at the barn church told you this morning, you can say, he told me to be a hypocrite. <laughs> in summary, on that point, I take hypocrisy in the most generic of ways here to simply mean ungodly. Simply means ungodly. The bottom line is the Pharisees were engaging in ungodly fasting. They were fasting godlessly in that they did it with man in view rather than with God in view. But don't think that that reduces Jesus' critique back down to their internal motivation, taking us back to the Greek idea of hypocrisy as acting. It doesn't take us back to that at all because he's critiquing not solely why they did it to be seen by men, but how they did it. How they did it, that being ostentatiously, as showily as possible. It was clear that their fasting was done with a particular audience in view, and that audience certainly was not God. But how did he arrive at that conclusion? It wasn't by looking at their hearts. It was by looking at their actions. It was by looking at their actions. The outside was wrong, which was going to keep the inside wrong. In order to correct the godlessness of their fasting, what does Jesus do except prescribe fasting in a way that could only be Godward? Because no one else would know about it. He says, how do, how do you fix that? 
If your motivation toward fasting was wrong and you really just want to be known as somebody who's very holy and who abstains from food, it's like, oh, I should ask Wesley questions. I've heard he fasted for three days. He must be a very spiritual person. If you struggle with this outward performative man-centered thing, how does Jesus say that you should go about fixing that? Not by not fasting anymore, but by fasting differently so that you don't get that payoff anymore, so that in not getting that payoff anymore, you break the addiction to man's praise and begin to develop an addiction or a dependency on the one who you're actually supposed to be dependent on, namely God. So do it secretly, so that he, he's the only one who knows. But again, what is he doing? He's prescribing something for the outside to fix the inside. Have we covered that enough? Yeah, we've talked about that every week for a long time. But I'm telling you, obedience, 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 obey. Like, let's be a people who do what God told us to do. It's the only way that your heart gets fixed, gets cleansed, that you orient yourself differently, that you walk into a new manner of being and thinking and existing in God's grace, he has made it so that we are not simply lifeless subjects that cannot do anything to affect any of the change that we're asking him for. He gave you arms and legs and a will, and he means for you to employ it in obedience to him, and that's going to reshape your heart in the direction of your actions. But when you, when you have a lot of Bible teaching and sermons that just don't want to go toward obedience, that don't want to call to repentance, that don't want to say, I don't care if you don't feel like it, do it anyway. In the absence of that, what you have is a whole lot of people who never change because they've simply closed the door on God's primary means of seeing us delivered. Obedience is not just a fruit of sanctification, it is the path toward it. All right, we'll talk about that again next week. <laughs> now let's consider <clears throat> the disguise that Jesus prescribes for fasters. Because again, he, he tells them to put on a certain disguise. He says, here's how I want you to dress up when you're fasting. Right? We want to consider that disguise because it, it means something. Jesus tells us that when we fast, we should present ourselves well. We, we shouldn't be unkempt. We shouldn't be homely looking. We shouldn't have you know, bags under our eyes if we can avoid it. No Crocs and socks. He says, look nice. <laughs> he says, be, be presentable. Look glad, joyful, and full when you're fasting. Wash and anoint your head. And washing and anointing, biblically speaking, very interestingly, are actually associated in the Old Testament with the end of a fast. The end of a fast is when you would wash and anoint your head with oil. These are things that you did when the turmoil, urgency, and plight that put you in the fasting state to begin with had come to an end. And so now you present yourself differently. And David fasted. You may remember the account. David fasted and prayed for the deliverance of his son. And God said, the consequence for your sin is the life your child. He fasted, he prayed, he wept, he laid in the dirt. But when the boy died, he stopped fasting, he rose from the dust, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he worshiped, and he ate. And yet Jesus tells us, do 
at what's normally at the end of the fast, at, at the beginning, and, and in the middle, and at the end. Do that the whole time. He, he's telling us to fast like we're feasting. Jesus is telling us to fast like we're feasting. And, and so we have to ask the question, why would we fast like we're feasting instead of fasting like we're fasting? Why, why would we do that? Three reasons, at least. One, because Christ has come, which means that the ultimate feast is a forthcoming reality. So we fast in anticipation of that feast. Second reason, because Christ has come and given his spirit, our fasting is feasting. As we live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God as ministered by his Holy Spirit. Third, because fasting is to our spiritual state what washing and anointing is to our physical state. That is to say that fasting prepares us for feasting spiritually in the way that washing up and putting on your best prepares us for a feast physically. It's the spiritual counterpart. Jesus says, fast like you're getting ready for the richest of feasts, because you are. You are. We don't engage in fasting self-flagellatingly or self-righteously, but excitedly anticipating the feast to come, the faithfulness of God that will be poured out. We're called to an act of continual feasting, because in Christ, everything the Lord gives us is festal is festive because in Christ, everything that he gives to us, he gives to us as a father gives to his son. That is to say, we're never not feasting because of what the Lord has done. And every fast is the spiritual equivalent of anointing our head with oil, washing up, putting on our best clothes because we know we're headed to a feast. We want to be ready for it. Let's pray.